This is Sovereign Debt, a podcast on greening the global economy and debt sustainability. I'm your host, Jill Doshi. So hello, everyone. It has been a really busy and exciting time. As you might have noticed, the market is starting to catch on. People are starting to connect the dots between debt sustainability and the broader meaning of sustainability. Recently had a large debt for nature swap in Ecuador and elsewhere. And so there's a lot of excitement in the market. But keeping true to my promise for 2023, I want to have more voices from people who've actually been in the hot seat dealing with these issues. And so I'm thrilled today to have Cesar Arias from Colombia. He was the uh, director of the debt management office through, well, I guess really the kind of the COVID area, but you you can, we'll, we'll, we'll let you kind of explain exactly what time period you were there. But importantly, you were also the architect of the country's green bond program. So Cesar, thank you so much for, for joining us on the podcast today. Well, Jill, thank you very much for the invitation. Greetings to all your listeners across the world. And it is a real pleasure to be here in the prime podcast about sovereign debt. Ah, thank you. So we have a lot of ground to cover. And so I don't want to jump in, but before we get into the nitty gritty of the actual green bond program that you worked on, I want to ask you to kind of set the stage a little bit. Like I said, in the intro, you were really there in the debt management office during an extraordinary time period during the COVID era. And I can't even imagine uh, the stress and the challenges that you were facing. So first off, can you just set the stage a little bit of like, what was it like? Leading the debt management office in Colombia through the pandemic and the economic recovery after has definitely been the most challenging, but also the most rewarding job of my career. Mm. The top priority was to raise unprecedented levels of funding. Uh, Just to put it in perspective, Colombia's borrowing needs doubled from an annual average of 8% of GDP to nearly 14% of GDP during the peak of the pandemic. This is the equivalent to raising $36 billion per year during that time. Wow. So to achieve this, we diversify all of our sources of funding. Uh, The local bond market was, of course, the key cornerstone of our strategy. But we also maximize international bonds issuance and our access to loans from multilateral institutions. But the task of the National Treasurer was not complete until those resources were deployed immediately and effectively to the health system, mm-hmm. the vulnerable households and workers, and to small companies. So in addition to debt management, uh, we learn a lot about social policy, supporting businesses, and development payment systems in a country of 50 million people. Right. So, I mean, at, at that moment, you had as you say, kind of extraordinary new financing needs, but I presumably also your revenues kind of collapse just like everywhere around the world, right? So you had just an extra on both sides of the equation, 
some sort of pressures. Exactly. Lower revenues, higher expenditures. Right. And then obviously huge need, like you say, on the kind of social expenditure. So in that moment, when you're facing those sorts of challenges, what made you start thinking about the green economy? Like, I would think that at that moment, when you're having to think about pandemics and and kind of primary health care of your population, maybe maybe trees and biodiversity isn't kind of top of the list or walk me through kind of why then why at that time how are you thinking about sustainability so let's start by saying that uh, colombia is the second most biodiverse country in the planet therefore i always tell investors that every dollar that they allocate to colombia could have positive multiplier effects on decarbonization and sustainability at the global level. But this privilege, natural endowment, comes with high responsibilities. So we arrive to the government, and when we we first analyzed the national budget for green investments in Colombia, we were shocked to conclude that only 1% of the national budget was appropriated for environmental projects with high impact on mitigation, adaptation, and conservation. And again, just context, this is kind of pre-COVID. This is kind of when you when a new government came into power. So what, what time period was this? Was 2018, and 18. we started this exercise in 2019, which was okay. a very bull market and good year. So we had time. And the government was coming in with that kind of mandate and had been talking about that and there was kind of already that kind of known interest. Absolutely. So so at that point, I wasn't really sure if the optimal share of green expenditures in the budget should have been 2%, 5%, or 10%. Right. But what I did know was that the 1% was unacceptable and that we could make a difference contributing from the debt office. And by the way, Every country has a different financing gap, but what it is true is that underinvestment in environmental activities is an unfortunate reality across emerging markets and developed markets. So debt managers are in a unique position to contribute to narrow this funding gap. In my opinion, every debt management office should incorporate within its core functions the design and implementation of an environmental and climate finance strategy, both in markets and with multilaterals. And so when you came into office, you were already thinking along these lines and thinking, okay, the green economy, this is important. As you said, kind of our expenditures are quite low in this sector or with this purpose. Did you at that time also sense that there was kind of investor interest and that this could be an interesting way of kind of diversifying? And then I and then I imagine then just COVID hit, like when you're sitting down actually kind of making plans, right? Absolutely. And there wasn't a pressure to kind of just abandon kind of the plan. No, the contrary, the contrary. I think what what COVID if prompt us all in debt management offices was to really diversify and maximize every single source of financing. So we really squeeze every drop of the lemon from multilaterals, from global markets, 
from the domestic markets, and we figure out that with this national endowment that Colombia had, we could have also capitalized on designing and implementing a sovereign green finance strategy. So then, so then, like turning to what that strategy ended up being. So you sat down with kind of a blank slate. <laughs> Walk me through kind of what you were thinking at that point. You know, you you mentioned the domestic markets and external markets. I know the end story that you ended up kind of doing this through your kind of normal auction process. So walk me through kind of a little bit that decision tree for you. Absolutely. So we decided that we needed to maximize the two sources to attract capital. That and the second is equity. Right. And we decided to start by the debt. So Mm -hmm. we signed a program to issue the first sovereign green bonds. Mm -hmm. And those bonds had three unique characteristics. And I explain you why we selected those characteristics. So first, they were issued through auctions to our 15 primary dealers, as opposed to syndications, which is the traditional way that other countries have done. Second, they were issued in local currency and under domestic law, as opposed to some of the issuers that prefer international law and external markets. And third, we adopted a twin bond structure from the German treasury, which basically allows you to issue a green twin and a conventional twin so that you can compare in real time in the primary and in the secondary market the differences in investor preferences about prices and interest rates. Markets responded positively to these innovations. Uh, Colombia raised 2 trillion Colombian pesos in sovereign green bonds. That's the equivalent of $500 million. Three auctions between September of 2021 and June 2022, with a new 10-year benchmark that had a coupon rate of 7.25%. That rate today is, uh, was a miracle at that time, but those were different conditions. Okay, so a lot to unpack there. So you decided first to go with the the domestic market because um, Colombia has kind of a very deep and broad domestic investor base. And so you don't have some of the other challenges that some other emerging markets have. You You have that investor base. And then you decided... At the same time to issue this, as you say, kind of this twin issuance. So you could, and did you observe this magical, elusive greenium that everyone's, because that's exactly really the only way that we can really know if there is a greenium, if you can have two bonds that are identical, except for this green element. So we can really compare like what the, what the investor appetite was, what the pricing was, what kind of happened in the secondary market? The short answer is yes. We yeah. found the green <laughs> holy grail. But it's, it's more nuanced. Uh, Colombia's sovereign green bonds demonstrated benefits in terms of cost, as you said, resilience, investor diversification, and capital markets development. So let's start by cost. So green bonds tend to be cheaper. The interest rate of the green twin has been consistently 10 basis points lower on average than Mm -hmm. the yield of the conventional bond in the secondary market. 
Okay, so as I told you, the coupon mm -hmm. may be seven point twenty-five. The other bond was seven point thirty-five. This green union is higher than that of Germany and Norway, which are also countries that use the twin bond approach. Their green unions mm -hmm. between three and seven basis points. But our green union is more aligned with India, which recently debuted with sovereign bonds, sovereign green bonds in the local market. But noteworthy, the distribution of the greenium is positively skewed. That means that in all the observation, it goes from minus 18 to mm -hmm. plus 40 basis points. And it stays most of the time on the positive territory. But more interestingly also is that the greenium outperforms during periods of high market volatility because the conventional bonds are faster to trade, okay. whereas the green bonds have a longer-term mandate. Yeah, I was just going to say they're stickier, more stable investors. There's actually recently a new paper by the European Central Bank that explains and that provides empirical evidence for this. So that's in terms of cost and resilience, which is very important when you're a debt manager. There's another aspect that I want to highlight is that green bonds attract more retail and foreign investment. Okay, that was exactly where I was going next. So when we say that we issue green bonds in local currency, it doesn't mean that we were only targeting Colombian investors. Mm -hmm. In fact, 60%, 60 of the current holders of green bonds are foreigners. Global okay. capital investors. But not flighty foreigners, in the, in the sense of like, th these aren't foreigners that are kind of hot money coming in, zipping out. They have consistently held that 60% share of the sovereign green bond. But this is very interesting because that's more than double the share of non-resident participation in the conventional bonds, which is 25%. Interesting. That is a very powerful diversification benefit. And you also see it with the retail, non-private, local institutional investors. Their participation in the green bond is close to 20%, whereas in the conventional bonds is 10%. So this paper from the ECB, what tells you is that because of the longer term horizon of green investors, and the higher participation of retail and non-institutional, they're more resilient and make them an addition to the diversification mix. So those are very two important benefits that we figure out. And there's a third one, which is that the, the leadership role of the government has fostered innovation and improved liquidity in the domestic market without generating crowding out which is the risk of dominating the domestic. So the local green bond market in Colombia amounts to the equivalent in dollars of $1.5 billion, let's say 0.5% of GDP. But for every dollar equivalent that the treasury has issued, local private financial institutions, corporates, and development banks have issued $1.3. So it's a very balanced mix. So there's also a, a capital development angle that we wanted with this strategy. So this sounds like it was an overall raging success. <laughs> First of all, actually, before I delve into that, this 
step back for a second. The bonds that you were issuing, let's just make sure that we're all on the same page here. When we're talking about green bonds, we're talking about, you know, kind of classic use of proceeds bonds. So this was very much you were borrowing for a particular purpose and you had identified projects or priorities or how, 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 what was that side of the story for you? Like, did you have the projects already kind of in the pipeline and ready, or was this kind of a, like, I understand that you came in and you said, okay, well, you know, we want to increase the spending for our environment and, and we want to, you know, kind of protect this natural capital that we have. Did you have uh, kind of new conversations with Ministry of Environment around projects? Tell me a bit about the kind of use of proceeds side of this. Oh, that's it's an excellent question. So, so yes, the, the Colombian sovereign green bonds were issued with a commitment of the Treasury to investors. Mm-hmm. Use the proceeds in projects with high environmental impact. That was verified independently by Moody's ESG Solutions. At the time, it was called Vigeo Aries. And the Ministry of Finance just published the first round of annual reports for allocation and impact. To put it in simple terms, so the Colombian Treasury issued $500 million equivalent in local currency, invested that in four main areas. Mm-hmm. So 39%, almost 40%, was clean transportation, mostly for the construction of the first metro line in the capital and the maintenance of public transportation networks in regional cities. Under the idea that more public transportation, lower use of cars, lower emissions. 31%, and this is very Colombian, in water sanitation, primarily in sewage and water treatment plants. 16% in biodiversity conservation, for example, the preservation of national parks that in our case cover 30% of the territory, including some areas in the Amazon, and 10% in renewable energy, mainly in projects that contribute to the increase of share of solar and wind sources in the energy matrix. So markets value policy consistency and access to measurable indicators to assess progress. For instance, investors like the government's overall commitment to increase the share of wastewater treated from a comparative low of 37%, only 37% of the water was properly treated in Colombia a few years ago, to 53% by 2022. Okay, but just to to be really clear, The financing that you had did not necessarily have kind of the key performance indicator or the KPI in the sense of a kind of embedded target that the outcome, like increase taking your water treatment kind of indicator there. You the financing terms didn't change in any way. We're not talking about a sustainability linked bond that said, oh, if I increase my water treatment or improve my water treatment up to above 50%, I get a reduction in my coupon. That's not what we're talking about. No, that's not what we're talking. But regardless if you're in a use of proceeds or in a sustainability link, you need indicators to assess impact because you want to invest your dollars in projects that move the needle in sustainability. 
Yes, but, but I'm sorry to kind of dig down a little bit deeper here, but you know, there's no contractual ramification if you don't do it. I mean, there's a reputational risk. There's a kind of investors getting, you know, and there's the kind of greenwashing and all of those ideas. But contractually, there's nothing with teeth in it to say, you know, there's no default on the conservation side of things. The main risk for the issuers mm-hmm. of use of proceed bonds are reputational. I often say that sovereign green bonds have to survive the test of elections because every four or five or six years, depending on the country, environmental and climate policies change and they are longer term by nature and require policy continuity to advance. In addition to that, debt offices also face resource and capacity constraints to coordinate with other line ministries to replenish the pipeline of financial projects and to comply with monitoring, verification, and reporting requirements. So it's a very involved process. But reputational risk can very quickly translate into market risks. What do I mean by that? Mm -hmm. When the issuance of a sovereign green bond, for example, become a one-off, you have one single bond, you don't even have a yield curve, you have a point, there could be credibility, liquidity, and ultimately pricing will get affected for these sovereign instruments. So that's one of the main challenges that sovereign are facing today. So we have this first generation of green bonds issue. Right. We're experiencing the first generation of reporting and we're assessing everybody in the market how that reporting is rigorous. But we're also facing the challenge of renewing that pipeline of projects and impact. But I agree with you, the risk is reputational. You may not default, but it will bite you the next mm-hmm. time you have to face investors in the market. I'm just curious, did, did you feel like you said that the, the it's the test of an election? Do you get the sense that the population is... Um, paying attention that this was a green bond, that this was something different, that you were supposed to use this money for this? Or is or is it, so is there a political risk or is it more kind of, as you say, uh, kind of a reputational slash market, it translates to investors not believing you next time around? It's, it's both. The good thing about use of proceed bonds is that you have to be accountable to Congress because you have to go to Congress every year to propose and approve the budget. Gotcha. Okay. And Congress talked to the population. And believe me, the population was actually my main ally to move financing strategy forward. So what I like about the use of proceeds approach is precisely that, that you have a way to increase the share of investments, be mm-hmm. accountable to Congress. Mm-hmm. communicate to civil society and public opinion, and of course, interact permanently with markets. That is okay. a discipline that forces you to be more consistent and to green fiscal and financial policies little by little. Did you find that there was, I mean, you talked about the greenium of 10 basis points, so there's some cost savings perhaps, but is that kind of eaten up immediately by 
all of this other monitoring and other costs or how, how did you how did you feel about time is more is more burdensome than cost i mean if if you take 10 basis points of 500 million or 1 billion dollars is something like between 500,000 to a million dollars that covers the cost of right. spo verification lawyers and and other things there are also ways to mitigate that cost so we went for example for auctions instead of syndications right we also raised funds from multilaterals to pay for the verification independently mm -hmm. of the framework to pay for the reporting at least in the first stage so there are options out there to mitigate that cost but what debt offices cannot underestimate is that they basically have to create dedicated subgroups or units within the debt office is an upfront cost, but it will be key to coordinate with other line ministries to right. give continuity to this strategy. Uh, but that's just being consistent with your commitments to reduce emissions, to meet the Paris alignment <laughs> requirements and right. so on. So I, I it's, uh, it's busy. But it is a process of bringing those commitments into Ministry of Finance where they might not naturally be sitting or, or being considered as... And did you, did you develop like a whole green bond framework to begin with? Or is that something that you kind of did on the kind of afterward or... Yes. So the first thing is that you need to prioritize. So I gave you the, our four priorities. And these priorities right. came from the president and the cabinet and Congress. Right. Everybody in the country, there was a consensus about transition to clean transport, water, sanitation. Okay, so you had that kind of interministerial task force, high-level buy-in, The job of the debt office was to create the vehicle that would maximize impact Right. minimize cost and develop yeah. markets. And that was we developed these twin green bonds in local currency. We also mm -hmm. faced this discussion about should you go for a use of proceed bonds or a sustainability link? And I always was of the view that use of proceeds and sustainability link bonds are complements. Mm -hmm. not substitutes in an effective sovereign financing strategy. We talk a lot about use of proceed bonds. They help align fiscal policies with environmental impacts. They facilitate the transparency and accountability between issuers and investors. They trace mm -hmm. money. And without a minimum degree of green tagging, our national budgets will continue to overweight subsidies and current expenditures and mm -hmm. underfund investments in environment, agriculture, energy, and biodiversity. Mm -hmm. And this is not only a Colombian thing. I'm only picking in my country because I know it, but... Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, this is everywhere. No, everything that you're saying is... Applicable. However, the use of proceed bonds typically face size constraints, both the supply of eligible projects and their limited environmental impact. In contrast, SLB, sustainability link bonds, present annual the annual budget cycle. Right, right. They are generally larger and they are yeah. more flexible to execute. And these attributes made them better suited to finance multi-year policies, like, mm -hmm. for example, emission reduction pathways. 
or natural forest conservation. And these or are even for countries that need actually as KPIs just developing a pipeline of projects. Absolutely. Right? You know, Absolutely. And for, for many are, countries, it's kind of a, their projects are too small or they don't have even the resources to do the feasibility studies or, or anything. And that's why with these type of KPIs were the ones chosen by the two sovereign issuers of SBS that we know. So in case yeah. of Chile, so yeah. energy transition and emissions. In the case of Uruguay, uh, emissions and forestry conservation. And there is another fundamental difference between the two. In the use of proceed in the SLBs, issuers are in the control of interest rate incentives. So outperformance leads to lower coupons and underperformance leads to higher interest rates. In the use of proceeds bonds with a twin structure, investors are in control of the interest rate incentives. So they concede or demand greeniums in the primary and secondary markets, depending mm -hmm. if they like or they don't like. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So in Colombia, we decided to go by sequencing. We followed the Chilean example. We started by green use of proceeds yep. in 2021, 2022. Yep. We left to the new government a framework to move into social and sustainability use of proceeds bonds, which I wouldn't be surprised if they tap. And then hopefully, when our policies are more mature, right. then the Treasury can move to sustainability-linked instruments. So in the case mm -hmm. of Chile, they have done everything. They have issued $32 billion ESG bonds. That's 30% of their debt. And they have used 16% is social, 7% is green, 6% is sustainable, and 2% is sustainability link. I personally think that's the way to go, and we follow that example in Colombia. That makes sense. I have another question that's not necessarily relevant to Colombia or some of these other cases you're mentioning. But to a lot of other sovereigns and people who are tuning in, listening, which may not be in such a strong position, particularly in today's market environment, um, and that some issuers might actually need some help from their friends in terms of credit enhancements. What do you what do you think from your perspective? Like, do these green bonds, SLBs, etc., do they lend themselves? I mean, and I'm not even talking about the debt swaps in the Ecuador kind of examples and things, but just in general, do you see these instruments also being able to use credit enhancements or benefit from them? And or or do you think that's kind of a bridge too far and it's just getting all too complicated? Because you hear I hear both opinions and I I'm just want to hear yours. Sustainable finance innovation is also helping lower-rated countries, and even sovereigns in debt distress. And let me give you two examples very briefly. I'm a big believer in the new resilience and sustainability facility by the IMF. It is promoting <laughs> environmental reforms, anchoring investor confidence, and effectively serving as a training enhancement. Mm -hmm. Costa Rica and Jamaica are the two first countries to access this credit facility. That combines traditional conditionality with long-term budget support. And it's a facility designed for vulnerable countries. Barbados, Bangladesh, Rwanda are applying for it. 
Sure. Well, Costa Rica just received a two-notch upgrade from Fitch in April that mm -hmm. moved its sovereign ratings from the single B to the double B category. Nice. Of course, as a result of improved fiscal profile, multilateral support, and the solid ESG credentials. Meca is following suit. Fitch placed its single B ratings in a positive outlook in March, also from mm -hmm. the single B to the double B category. So right. I will call that a credit enhancement. Mm -hmm. More importantly, Costa Rica raised $1.5 billion, returning to global bond markets in March after a three-year hiatus. Yeah, yeah. And the deal was four times oversubscribed. So what I'm trying to say is that if you have a strong ESG reform plan coupled mm -hmm. with a sound macroeconomic and prudent management, and you get the support either from a multilateral, then you will be in a better position not only to use that support to refinance your debt, but also to go and raise funds as a standalone in international markets. And I'm just providing the example of Costa Rica. Mm -hmm. And maybe I wouldn't be surprised if Jamaica at some point into the future will do that. And we talk about Rwanda, Bangladesh, and others. Absolutely. So that's the first example for a credit enhancement, moving you from the single B to the double B category. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't want to spend too much time on it because you're an expert in that, but, but the guarantees in the context of debt for nature swaps are also providing valuable fiscal space and promoting biodiversity conservation in sovereigns in distress. But there's a new generation of debt for nature swaps. This has been from the 80s. Exactly. They combine three characteristics. First, they are voluntary and market-based. It is basically a bond buyback at discounted prices. Exactly. Second, Guarantees and political insurance pro provided by highly rated institutions transform magically triple C rated bonds to double A rated securities. And third, you have this important player, which is a specialized environmental institution that ensures progress right. on the conservation agenda. So when we started two years ago with uh, Belize, and Barbados, the deals were in the size of $146 million in Barbados, $364 in Belize. I'm very motivated and very encouraged to see that now the transactions may get into the billions, yeah. like it was the case in Ecuador. But I'm more motivated to see that the pool of guarantors is also diversifying. You now see U.S. Development Finance Corporation, Inter-American Development Bank, the Natural Conservancy. And there is a host of insurance and reinsurance yeah. companies that are also sharing. Yeah, all of the, yeah, exactly. All the insurance and reinsurance markets. And this is the game right now. This is all part of this MDB reform. And we could speak for another hour <laughs> about. So, so far, my prediction yeah. is that the last three transactions took place in Latin America and the Caribbean. Yeah. But I have no doubt that you will see them replicate in other regions in emerging markets. Absolutely. Let's hope. So last question um, is a bit of a tradition here, which is to kind of just give you the last word 
you, as I said, have been in the hot seat, uh, a particularly difficult, challenging time during COVID. What sort of advice would you give to other debt managers facing, okay, maybe maybe the COVID moment is thankfully passing, but yet we're in the perhaps, I don't, I, I don't want to say equally or whatever, but it's certainly, a, again, an incredibly challenging market environment um, with geopolitical tensions, rising rates, et cetera. What advice just in general do you have for debt managers in today's today's situation? I currently advise uh, many debt management offices in emerging markets. And the first thing is what you said. Crisis is the new normal. Yeah. Wait for the good times because they may not come. I waited for years and they never came. No. Uh, so we tend to see our job as technical, as focus on interactions with financial markets. Yet, in my opinion, the modern debt manager has higher bar. Mm. He or he has to be a government leader, an innovator, and especially a strong communicator. So here mm. are four pieces of advice. First, Political willingness is the most important prerequisite for climate finance policy. So invest a lot of time advocating climate finance reforms, establishing interagency alliances, and influencing the ministry, the minister, and other members of the parliament. Second, climate finance should be a state policy, not a single government, one woman or man show. Thus, mm -hmm. Polish your rulemaking skills so that environmental, energy transition, climate change can be incorporated in the law and in the institutions that make policies and decisions in the government. Nice. I like that. Third, one. communicate, communicate, and communicate. Be transparent, proactive, mm -hmm. inform public opinion, Congress, market participants of the goals and the implementation of your strategy especially when there are good news. We all tend to report good news, but not the bad news. But when right. the bad news happens is when you need to face calm investors and constituencies. And four, develop your local domestic debt market. There are a yeah. lot of upfront costs to build a local yield curve, to nurture your local investor base. But borrowing local currency protects you from depreciation. Yeah. It helps you during periods of global risk aversion and contribute to the development of critical markets like pensions, insurance, mortgages, infrastructure. Uh, so those are uh, the pieces of, of advice that I can share with your audience. But this has been a fascinating discussion and I thank you for your invitation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Cesar. This is great. And what a wonderful summary there of, of advice. Um, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. It's a pleasure, Jill. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, leave us a review and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts.